You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back once again to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. K here, Mike Karuchak, your host for this week with Dr. Hal coming back next week. We're still alternating weeks. Uh, maybe we'll do a joint show together here in June as we approach the third anniversary of the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. And as we approach that, we'll start recognizing once again uh, all of the support that we have enjoyed to get us this far. Uh, we certainly appreciate you, the listeners, uh, you know, listening some 15,000 of you according to podcast downloads uh, every month. And so we appreciate your support. Uh, we would also continue to appreciate your financial support. If you like what you hear, please go to, uh, www.d, the numeral four, letter P, letter C, D4PC Foundation. Org, and please give generously. Uh, we, the board of the Doctor Patient Care Foundation, donate our time with no compensation, but it takes more than that. Uh, it takes money to maintain our infrastructure, to distribute the radio show and the podcast. Uh, so uh, if you can find it in your heart, give up a couple of those Starbucks grande lattes and uh, give us 20 or $25. And if enough of you do that, we can keep this going for at least a few months more. So thanks very much in advance for your support. Uh, the, docs for, uh, the Doctor's Lounge is supported by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. Uh, we are a 501c3 organization. We support free market solutions to the problems facing healthcare. We support the empowerment of doctors and patients by the minimization of the role of third-party payers in healthcare so that doctors and patients are free to find uh, solutions uh, for their patients' healthcare problems that actually work for them. On the national stage, we're uh, enjoying perhaps uh, a bit of a lull in the national dialogue on health care reform. Uh, we're still licking our wounds from uh, the epic fail of the Republicans to pass uh, a uh, an update or a repeal of Obamacare on the first attempt. Uh, and so as, as we're in this lull and, and everybody's watching North Korea and Syria and all these other places, we can sort of turn our attention – uh, at least on my shows, where as you know, if you've listened before, I have sort of the bent towards health information technology, uh, that we talk about a few new things that are coming up in health information technology and maybe some stuff that gives us uh, a bit of optimism in a, in a part of the universe where there isn't in general not a lot of cause for optimism. Um, but uh, you know, we're, we're broadcasting to you from the heart of the Georgia's 6th congr- Congressional District, and maybe you've heard about this. I wanted to get into this before we went all the way back into uh, health information technology. But uh, uh, we just had a special election here in the Georgia 6th Congressional District to uh, begin the process of replacing Tom Price, who, of course, as you know, uh, has moved on to become the Director of Health and Human Services. A great thing to be sure. Uh, we're delighted to see Mr. Price, Dr. Price, in that role. Uh, but but uh, it, it leaves his seat vacant, and so uh, the, there was a process begun to do that. Uh, it was a rather, uh, in my opinion, a rather lackluster uh, list of candidates uh, both uh, from both parties uh, for the position, but the Republicans almost got their head handed to them uh, thanks to a, a classic difference in behavior between Democrats and Republicans. The Democrats do what they always do well, which is to get behind one candidate, any candidate, doesn't matter who, doesn't matter how worthy they are. 
Uh, it doesn't matter if it's Hillary Clinton for president or John Ossoff to replace uh, Dr. Price. Uh, the uh, the MO is the same, which is, uh, you know, the leadership says, here's who you're going to support. Everybody supports them. Uh, and that's a rather successful strategy. Uh, on the other hand, the Republicans uh, tend to be more independent, tend to be less organized. And so we had a long list of candidates on the Republican side. The support was all divided. And we narrowly escaped, the Republicans narrowly escaped uh, getting their heads handed to them uh, with the Democrat almost getting over 50% of the vote and avoiding a runoff. Um, that didn't happen, and so now there's going to be a runoff election in June uh, with John Ossoff versus Karen Handel. So uh, hopefully circumstances will relieve Republicans of the need to organize themselves. Circumstances will do that for them, but it was a close call. I'm going to move on to a personal story that is uh, appropriate for the topic of today, which is to talk about some new uh, patterns, some new technologies coming along that may allow us in health information technology to actually get a little bit of security and privacy um, for our electronic medical records. So this is a personal story about my American Express credit card. So like many of you, I have an American Express card. Uh, like some of you, um, I have the app on my phone that allows me to monitor charges to the card so as soon as I buy groceries or gas. Five minutes later, I see that transaction appears a notification on my phone. And uh, the, the utility of that is obvious, which is if I start seeing transactions that don't make any sense to me, I can pick up the phone and call American Express and, you know, figure out what's going on. So yesterday, uh, weird things started to happen. Started seeing these pre-authorization charges for a dollar here and a dollar there. There were two hits to iTunes. There was a couple of dollar pre-auths to Uber. And I didn't think too much of them at first because we do have iTunes accounts in our house and my daughter uses Uber sometimes. And so I looked at these things and said, well, this is a little odd, um, but I'll ask my daughter when she gets home from school or whatever she's doing last night and uh, and see what was going on and make sure those charges were legit. And then bigger charges coming through, came through, you know, $6 here for Uber, $7 here for Uber. I thought, well, this is odd. Is my daughter or her friends using Uber two or three times in a night on a, on a school night, on a weeknight? This is a little strange. And about the time I started to really get suspicious, American Express actually contacted me, said, we got a $30 Uber charge here that looks like it came from outside the country. Was this you? And I was like, no, I, I, you know, they, they sent me that as an alert through the app. And so I immediately called them and said, let's look at this because this isn't right. Well, they had denied the charge. Um, and so we clearly figured out that, you know, somebody had gotten, you know, somebody had hacked my credit card. And so we canceled that card. And, you know, they're sending me a new one that hopefully gets here tomorrow. And just about all of you have probably been through that. So, you know, the drill. But the point of me telling you this rather common story is, that the key to maintaining security on the credit card account wasn't so much having some sort of bulletproof user password process or chip on the card or something. It was actually the ability to do pattern recognition. And Amex was able to see something was going on. Independently, I was monitoring that through the app. I was able to see that something weird was going on so that when American Express contacted me, you know, and that I immediately picked that notice out of all the crap and sales calls and stuff that, you know, comes through your cell phone to say, okay, this is legit. I'm going to pick up the phone, which I never do otherwise. But we were able to sort of maintain security on the card and figure out where the fraudulent charges were and, and deny those and, and sort of, you know, patch the hole, so to speak. But the point here was not 
to have some bulletproof thing up front. The point is to monitor and watch for pattern recognition. So keep that thought in mind as, as we move into uh, today's topic of discussion because – as you know, if you've listened to me go on and on and rant about this over the past almost three years now, we have a problem. We have a problem in health IT thanks to the idiots in Washington, D.C. under the prior administration who thought that uh, you know, digitizing our healthcare records for its own sake was a good thing, uh, and you know, so wonderful in fact that we're going to short circuit the free market by writing a bunch of regulations, uh, you know, called high tech and meaningful use, and now called macro that force us to put the health records of 300 million Americans online where they can be hacked, stolen, uh, you know, identities can be stolen, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? And we know that in 2015 in the United States, uh, 112 million medical records were stolen and last year uh, and again this is not apples to apples but uh, globally um, over 4.2 billion data records were stolen not all of those were medical records but you know the point is you know we have a massive problem with identity theft and hacking both within health information technology and outside of healthcare. Uh, and the irony is that, that the hackers have an easier time getting to records than legitimate users do because in the face of all of this lack of security and data hacking, we have no interoperability. We have no ability for legitimate users of healthcare data to get to the data. The hackers actually have it easier than we do. Uh, and so, you know, the, the fundamental problem here as we begin to discuss this new technology called blockchain, and that's what we're going to talk about today, is that our fundamental model of how we store and manipulate data is flawed. And the model I'm talking about is this idea that you have a server and that access to that server is granted by a series of usernames and passwords, and all you need is one valid username and password pair, and you get into that server. And once you're in, you're into everything. You can see the entire contents of that server. That's like having a house with no locks on the inside doors, one lock on the front door, and as soon as you pick the lock on the front door and get inside the entry foyer of the house, you now have access to every single room in the house, every single drawer in the chest of drawers, every single you know closet, every single room, every single nook and cranny. You have access to that because once you get inside the front door, there are no further protections beyond that. And that is not a, a, a workable paradigm going forward to have all of these data stored in, in massive servers and massive servers or networks that have a single username password protection paradigm. You know, centralizing data to that degree doesn't work because it creates a very small number of very rich targets. And so it becomes uh, a good return on investment for a hacker to spend a tremendous amount of time trying to generate a valid username password pair because once they get in, they're in. So it, it makes sense to spend hours, days, weeks trying to hack one server or network of servers because the return on investment is there because once you get through the front door, you have access to millions of records. And we know that you know, you know, Yahoo had I think like 500 million records stolen all at once and we've heard about those stories inside of healthcare where tens of millions of patients' records can be stolen all at once and not even detected for months because we have this situation where we've got one level of obstruction standing between, 
you know, a hacker and all of the data that they could possibly ask for. So how do you fix that? Well, you're not going to fix it by sticking with that paradigm. It's not like building a, putting a bigger lock on the front door or a thicker door is going to work because eventually the hackers are going to come along with a big enough billy club or a fancy enough lock picker that they're going to get through. And you end up playing this cat and mouse game that ultimately you're going to lose every time. So how do you, how do you fix that? Well, uh, it may make sense to go to the, the keynote address from the last HIMSS meeting, the Health Information Management System Society meeting that was given by the uh, CEO of IBM. Uh, and, you know, the one piece of wisdom that she had in that speech that I thought was good was to think about security in a different way. Don't think about it as one great big front door with a great big lock. Think of it like the human immune system where, you know, we have more than just our skin, right? There's There's immune functions that go on underneath the skin. I mean, imagine if the skin was all we had, then, you know, a scratch on your arm could be fatal because once a germ gets through that break in the skin, that that bacteria or virus has access to your whole body. Well, we know that doesn't happen. The immune system can detect that entry and can fight the attacking virus or bacteria or whatever after it's already got through the front door. So keep that thought fresh in your mind. We're at the end of the first segment. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. K. Karuchak, your host this week. Thanks for being with us here on America's Web Radio. Uh, we are talking about a new health IT topic this week as we confront a relative lull in the national uh, dialogue regarding healthcare reform gives us an opportunity, a little bit of wiggle room to sort of look in some other directions for some interesting things to talk about. So one thing that is coming up fast and furious in the healthcare information technology world is a new technology called blockchain. Actually, it's not that new. It was actually created back in 2008. But a technology called blockchain, which may hold very significant promise in solving the 
health IT security problems, which, as we were discussing in the last segment, remain terrible, and discussing some of the interoperability problems uh, where legitimate people like myself as a doc who who need access to healthcare data from patients actually have a harder time than the hackers do you know it, probably a uh, you know a, a lithuanian teenager living in eastern europe in his mother's basement with a couple of desktop computers can probably get to my patient's data easier than i can i mean that's the ugly irony here you know we have a ridiculous set of regulations that you know as hackers grab information almost every day it seems uh we have regulations that get hysterical if i text a physician colleague regarding a patient and i include protected health information i can get busted for that but of course the hackers can do whatever they want to so you know we've got this ugly irony going on in in health it regulation you know one of the ways that we get out of that quagmire is for the technology to actually catch up to where we are in terms of needs right that's another thing the regulations did put all these records online right 300 million americans are roughly everybody's healthcare records are online now everybody's vulnerable to identity theft at some point you know hopefully there's some demand for security technology to catch up to our needs and maybe this technology called blockchain which we're going to spend the rest of the segment and maybe farther explaining maybe has some promise. A lot of people think that it does. So let's go back. We were talking about what's the fundamental problem with, with the way health IT data is structured right now. Well, it's the same paradigm we have everywhere else where, where you have a server or a network of servers that stores all of your information, right? It's a hub and spoke thing, right? The server is the hub and then all of the users of that database that's on the server are the spokes of the wheel. But everything comes to a central point. There's only one copy of everything. It's all maintained centrally and that creates this cr- tremendously rich target for hackers to go after and all you have to do is kick in the front door with a valid username and password and you're in. Everything is there. So how do we fix that? Well, the first thing we need to do is change the paradigm. Um, until we get rid of that rich target where all you got to do is break in through with one username password or something similar and you now have access to hundreds of thousands or millions of healthcare records or financial records or any kind of records that allows you to steal someone's identity, we have to get rid of the target. We have to make it so there aren't such attractive targets and so anything that a hacker would go after, it becomes more trouble than it's worth, number one, by making it hard to get in, of course, but number two, by making it such that things are so decentralized, not centralized, but decentralized, that it becomes ridiculous to try and steal it. I mean, I, I guess the best example I can think of is, you know, think about Fort Knox, right? I mean, Fort Knox, we all know what that is. That's where all the United States gold is stored, let's say. Uh, and, you know, it's it, what if instead of putting all the gold in one place, we spread it out? And all the gold was in a bunch of secret locations. Nobody knew where the gold was except for the people who needed to know. And now it makes no point to break into Fort Knox because there's not enough gold there to make it worth anybody's while. And you don't know where the rest of the gold is, so you don't know where to try to break into. So, you know, you could argue that the gold is a lot safer if it's scattered all over the country. There's no one repository of gold that is big enough to make it worth a thief's worthwhile to, number one, find out where it is, and number two, to actually try to break in and steal it. 
And even if a thief manages to do that, only a small percentage of the gold reserve is stolen except for the whole thing. So that's that's kind of the idea is instead of having one giant data repository for all this healthcare information, let's make it a bunch of smaller ones. Let's decentralize what's going on and make it that much safer because there are no more rich targets. Yeah, there's there's nothing more to go after. So so how do we do that? Well, Let's look at this technology called blockchain. I think the first thing we need to do is sort of look at history, right? I like giving history lessons. Hopefully you like hearing them. I don't know. But, but uh, you know, I, I think you can't figure out where you are until you understand where you've been. So you may not have heard of blockchain before, but you probably heard of Bitcoin. And where did you hear of Bitcoin? Well, the places you probably heard of Bitcoin were not terribly flattering stories. In healthcare, the one place you've probably heard of Bitcoin before is when, whenever an institution gets ransomwared, right? A hospital goes to log on to its EMR at 6 a.m. and discovers that all the data has been locked up. And unless you pay the kidnappers, shall we say, um, a ransom, um, they're not only going to keep your data locked up and keep you away from it, but they're going to sell it to other people, right? Ransomware. That's what ransomware is. Literally kidnap your medical data. Well, how do the kidnappers want to be paid? Well, they want to be paid in this thing called Bitcoin, which is in loose terms a digital currency that is completely anonymous. So Bitcoin is the currency of criminals, right? Ransomware folks and some other things. There was a thing called uh, uh, Silk Road, which was a, a website where you could buy drugs, and you know I think there was human trafficking there and a bunch of other things. Um, but it was another one of these things in the dark web, you know, the criminal underworld part of the internet. Uh, and so Bitcoin, with its blockchain technology, has this sort of sordid history that kind of gives it a bad taste. Uh, early from early on, and it even you know Bitcoin was hacked, and people had their Bitcoin currency stolen. So you know even it had sort of a rough start when it came to security. But eventually, over the last several years, you know Bitcoin has been recognized as a safe uh, method of currency, uh, such that governments are starting to recognize it. They're starting to put regulations in place that recognize and allow its use. And uh, it's it's gaining legitimacy in you know the legitimate uh, uh, you know part of the universe, uh, and the interesting thing is that even in the criminal world it seems to be secure. So the blockchain technology that is behind Bitcoin um, seems to be legit, despite its rather inauspicious or shall we say even sort of sketchy beginnings. So, so how does Bitcoin work? Well, everyone knows that Bitcoin is a digital currency. It is not exactly equivalent to dollars. There's an exchange rate between dollars and Bitcoins, and that exchange rate floats. Uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly what it is today, but here's what makes Bitcoin unique is that there is no central bank, shall we say. Uh, think about you do your online banking, right? But not everybody does online banking now. We certainly do it in our household. But if you think about it, how does that work? Well, there is a central bank that keeps track of your money and keeps track of your account balances. And so you log on to that with a username and password. You go in and, and see your checking account ledger and your savings account and your money market and whatever. But the bank is the central trusted entity, right? You trust the bank. I mean, obviously, you look over their shoulder and make sure it all looks right. 
Um, but in essence, the bank is trusted to keep your money and maintain your balances and not give away your money to unauthorized people who you know, will inevitably come looking for it. But there is a central entity, right? It's just like we we're talking about with healthcare information data. It's a hub and spoke thing, right? The bank's the hub. All the customers are the spokes. Bitcoin doesn't have that. And so that's the first conceptual leap that you're going to have to you – know, you, you're probably not going to understand all this the first time you hear it from me. I didn't understand it the first time I read about it. It, it took a couple of days of research and reading different people talking about it to sort of get this into my head. So I'll do my best to at least start the task of getting it into your head. But the first thing that you try to think about with Bitcoin is there's no bank. There's no single central accounting ledger that says Dr. K has 10 Bitcoins, right? Susie Smith has five Bitcoins. Bob Jones has 100 Bitcoins. And that that's all stored in a single ledger in a central location. With Bitcoin, using blockchain, that central ledger doesn't exist. So how do you keep up with who has what? Well, there's a ledger. There is a ledger, but that ledger is not kept in a single place. It is, in fact, replicated such that every single participant in the digital economy, this network of servers, um, has has a copy of the ledger. Now, you're going to hear me shuffling papers around a little bit because I've got to – I've got to refer to my notes to be sure I get this right. Uh, and like I said, it's not easy, but I'm going to try to do this as best I can. So imagine, if you will, close your eyes, relax your mind, stretch, use your feelings, Luke. Use the force here because this is hard to sort of get your arms around the first time, get your brain around. But imagine that a network of computers, let's say a thousand computers, a thousand users all want to get together and create their own little digital economy where money is exchanged, digital currency is exchanged between and among these 1,000 users, each of whom has a computer and that they're all linked together. And again, this the linkage is what they say in the business peer-to-peer. That means every computer has its own individual connection to every other computer. There is no central server. I think about that again. There is no central server. It's every, you know, if there's a thousand computers, each computer has 999 connections to each of the other computers. So the ledger, right, called the blockchain, right, we'll get into that now. The ledger is kept in something called a blockchain. So it's a copy of the accounting ledger, but instead of a single copy being kept in a single central server computer, every single user on the network has the entire accounting ledger. That means every single one of those thousand users has the ledger not only for its own account, but for each of the 999 other accounts. So you know not only how much money you have, but how much money everybody else has. Now, that might not have individual names. They're anonymous, and it's you know numbers instead of names. But the point is there's a thousand copies of that accounting ledger, not just one. 
So what does that mean in terms of security at the first level? Well, it means that if a hacker is going to get in and steal money from me, they not only have to fraudulently change my ledger, but they got to fraudulently change a thousand ledgers. And if they try to just come in and change my ledger, it'll never fly. Because if that kind of transaction on a blockchain network would immediately be recognized as invalid because it was only addressing one copy of the ledger and not all 1,000 copies all at once. We will continue our explanation of blockchain in the next segment. You are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. This is complicated, but stay with me. We're going we're gonna to make it make sense. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchek here this week on America's Web Radio. Thanks very much for sticking with us through some difficult mental exercises today. We are building your mental muscles talking about blockchain, this new information technology, security, and interoperability technique. And we were talking about the fact that if you're going to make data secure at all, uh, that you've got to get rid of this whole sort of central server, the one place where all your data is stored, thinking that you're going to guard this with passwords or routers or, you know, you know, you, you can't make anything secure enough. If you have a, a target that rich, the hackers are going to get it eventually. And that you've got to come up with a different paradigm on how you store and manipulate and exchange data. And that's what blockchain does. So that's what we were talking about you know, in the first two segments, and we're going to continue this explanation. So the first thing about blockchain that's different than what you're used to is that the data is not stored centrally. Every member of the network – has a copy of the ledger of transactions, and when a new transaction is created by a legitimate user, that is broadcast to the entire network. So there's, you know, if there's a 1,000 user network, there's 1,000 copies of the ledger of transactions, which is called the blockchain 
for reasons we'll get into later. But if you want to add an entry to the blockchain, you have to broadcast that to the entire network, creates a thousand new copies of that transaction. And so the first problem that a hacker has is that, number one, they don't have access to account balances. They only have access to individual transactions. That gives them far less power. And the second is that even in order to have access to single transaction, they have to change that transaction fraudulently on a thousand servers, not just one. Or the number of users in the network. I, I picked a thousand as an arbitrary number. You know, the, the, if it's a million users on a digital economy network, then there's a million copies of the ledger, and a hacker has to change a million copies and hack into a million computers, not just one. And that's the first level of security. That's the first place where blockchain is fundamentally different from the client server model that we're all used to, where you log on to a central server and put your username and password, and boom, you're in as they say. So that's the first difference. So now you might say at this point, if this is all you heard, you say, well, that's no big deal. If there's a method for legitimate transactions to go out over a network of a thousand computers, all I have to do is replicate that and make a fraudulent uh, broadcast look like a legitimate broadcast, and I can change a thousand servers, copies of a ledger, no problem, right? Well, no, because there's more to it than that. So that's where we're going. What does a legitimate transaction look like and how do you make it next to impossible for a hacker or other ne'er-do-well to create a fraudulent transaction that looks like a legitimate transaction? Well, what happens is when you create a transaction, let's say that Bob wants to give five bitcoins to Susan. Well, that's broadcast over the network, but the, the problem is it's not accepted as legitimate until the transaction is mined. That's what they call it, mining. So what happens? Well, what happens is that transaction has to have what they call a hash, which is kind of like a transaction ID, best as I can tell. But how do you create a legitimate transaction ID? Well, there's about three or four things that go into that ID. It's not just a username password. There is a private key that the person creating the transaction has. There is a public key that is accessible to everybody on the network. So it's kind of like a safety deposit box, right? You go into the bank, you want to get something out of your safety deposit box, you bring your key, the bank's got their key, you got to put two keys into two locks and turn both keys and out comes the box. But you've got to unlock the safe and then you got to put in two keys. So this is kind of the same thing. You've got to have the public key, you have to have the private key, and you have to have the transaction ID from the last the prior transaction that appeared on the network. Now think about how hard that would be to find. So this is like you got a, you've got three or four things in here. So what happens is you take the prior transaction ID from which has nothing to do with the transaction you're creating and you use the public key plus plus the private key and create this complex mathematical problem and I will confess up front, I do not fully understand this, but it's an extremely complex mathematical problem that's generated based on the two keys, and it's done to the prior transaction ID to create the transaction ID that goes with the trans- the new transaction you're trying to broadcast. So if that doesn't spin your head around just trying to explain it, imagine how hard it must be to to hack that. And it's, and it's to the point where it takes, uh, it takes the aggregate computer power of those entire thousand computers on the network about 10 minutes to 
retrieve the keys, retrieve the ID from the prior transaction, and and churn this complex mathematical problem out to create a legitimate ID for the new transaction. Oh, that made me exhausted just explaining that. So, but the bottom line is that creating a a new legitimate transaction, right? Adding a block to the blockchain, right? Lengthening the blockchain by a link, if you will, is a very complex process that requires uh, pulling data from multiple distant sources putting them together to create a math problem that creates that requires a huge amount of aggregate computer power to solve and then the transaction is accepted as legitimate and that is designed to take about 10 minutes for the entire network to do that so that's how links are added to the blockchain and one of the levels of security here is that your you know proverbial hacker in their mother's basement with just a few computers can't match the aggregate computing power of thousands of legitimate computers on the network and so the legitimate computers will always retrieve the keys and solve the problem first before the hacker can and even if the hacker manages to beat the billions to one mathematical odds what does the hacker really get they only get one transaction. So even if they beat, you know, what I'm told based on reading is, you know, billions to one odds of being able to solve the problem before the network miners do, that um, that they won't that the reward is not enough to justify the effort. Right? So that's a fundamental change. From what we talked about in the beginning, which is that all you got to deal with one, you know, in in the classic sort of password, username, password, server paradigm that we're living with today, where, you know, it's certainly worth the effort to try to find a username and password because once you get in, you have access to everything. When you do this, and this gets back to this immune system example I was talking about when the CEO of IBM was talking about security needs to look like our body's immune systems, that's what this is, right? I mean, if you get a cut in the skin and a bacteria goes through, the minute it gets below the skin, the immune system starts to fight that bacteria. Here you've got the same thing going on where even if you break through the skin and manage to hijack a transaction on blockchain or create a fraudulent transaction on blockchain, you've only done one transaction uh, you know, you don't have access to the entire account balances of every user because account balances aren't even stored as discrete data, which kind of gets into the next sort of, you know, piece of this thing, which is that, um, you know, you only you can only create you don't, you don't even know what kind of fraudulent transaction to create. Right. If let's go back to the let's go back to the SunTrust example. Let's say I have a thousand dollars in my checking account. And let's say that a hacker gets my username and password somehow and hacks into my bank account and sees I have $1,000, right? They can steal the entire $1,000 just like that. They can immediately look. The bank stores that balance as discrete data. They say, okay, Karuchek's got $1,000. Boom. You know, I got his checking account and his routing number, and I'm going to move that account from his account to my account, and it's done. How did they know that $1,000 was there? Because it's easy to see. It's right there. It's, just, it's stored as discrete data. In, in a blockchain network, balances aren't stored as discrete data. So if somebody were to break into my account or try to on a blockchain network, they wouldn't see my account balance anywhere. 
right? The only way that you can see an account balance is to go back and look at every single transaction that's assigned to my account all the way back to the beginning of the creation of the network, do the arithmetic and figure out the balance. The problem is to do that, they have to hack into every single transaction down the blockchain, right? Millions of them to find the ones that apply to my account and do the arithmetic and see how much money I have. And again, that becomes not only almost mathematically impossible, but you have a situation where the reward doesn't justify the effort. And so that that becomes that's why people are excited about blockchain, right? Because number one, you create a, a situation where you're looking only at transactions, not at balances. And you're only looking at tiny pieces of the whole picture instead of breaking through the front door with a username and password and seeing the entire system all at once. So, in the third, what, third, fourth segment, I don't remember where we are now, I guess we're, we're coming up, we're, we're 10 minutes into the, 11 minutes into the third segment. In the last segment, we'll get into exactly how this works in healthcare, because there is another layer to think about, and we can sort of give you a little bit of a teaser here in two minutes, but in healthcare, it needs to work a little bit different. In healthcare, you know, how if we were to literally apply the blockchain paradigm, that would mean that, you know, the ledger, so to speak, the database would be replicated on every single user in the network. So if we have a million doctors, let's say, just to make it very simple, so we would have a million users on the blockchain network that every single doctor's database would have a complete copy of the ledger, and that would mean that every single doctor would have the healthcare data literally of every single patient in the country, whether you were a legitimate, whether that patient was yours or not. Now, that obviously is impractical, right? We don't have the computing power, the computational power, we don't have the bandwidth, we don't have the electricity to maintain that level of networking. So how do you bring that down and make that practical? Uh, you know, that's what we'll talk about in the next segment. Uh, we're about 30 seconds early, but I'm going to end it anyway, and, um, and we'll go on from there. Um, you are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us for the fourth segment, and we'll figure out how blockchain applies to your electronic medical records. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. K, Mike Karuchek with you here all the way through segment four. We are trying to unravel the mystery of a new health information technology security and interoperability technique. Uh, it's called blockchain. And we were talking about how blockchain works initially with Bitcoin. And we talked about sort of the sordid history of Bitcoin and said, well, in spite of the fact that this was sort of the currency of, you know, cyber criminals and, and ransomware people and, and hackers and, and, and other ne'er-do-wells, that strangely the technology itself has proven itself very worthy as a uh, you know, trustworthy and secure method of currency exchange. And so the irony is, is that this technology, which originally kind of had rather inauspicious beginnings, may actually be very useful in health information technology and other places, financial sector, wherever, uh, that, uh, that this technology might be a way to decentralize rich targets of data, rich data targets, uh, and raise the level of security such that it's simply not worth a hacker's effort to try to get to the data. So we talked about how this works with Bitcoin, uh, you know, with just, you know, with digital currency, with digital money, if you will, and started at the end of the last segment to sort of say, well, how does this apply to healthcare? And we talked about one of the fundamentals of blockchain technology is that there is no single central ledger that says what everybody's assets are. That, that there is a copy of this ledger on every user's computer. So that's more secure because if you, you, you know, if you have to change millions of ledgers, that's a lot harder than changing one ledger. So fine. We also talked about how creating a legitimate transaction to broadcast to every single ledger copy on the network is also very complex because it needs a private key and a public key and you need the index from the prior block. Uh, and then you use the keys to operate on the index to create the index for the next block and that that makes for, number one, a very difficult thing to hack and number two, if you manage to hack it, you're only getting to one transaction. You're not getting to everybody's entire network assets. And so this now, because it's a fundamental structure change, is far more secure than trying to take a server username password paradigm and juicing it up with fingerprint recognition or retinal scanning or any of these other things because fundamentally all those things are linked to a password and all you need is the password you can bypass the fancy technology. This becomes much harder because it's a fundamental change in the structure. Instead of taking all your money and putting it in one safe behind the portrait over the fireplace, you take your money and spread it out and hide some of it in the safe and some of it under the mattress and bury some of it in the backyard. So if a burglar comes to your house... He doesn't have to look in one place for all the dough. You know, he's got to look all over the place, and that's too many targets and not enough time, and it becomes a, you know, a poor return on investment for the person trying to steal from you. So in healthcare, how does this work? Well, is, is it practical for you know, a million doctors 
in the United States to have a full copy of the ledger the way they do with Bitcoin? Well, no. It doesn't make sense for every doctor to have every single patient's health records stored in their server. Huge amount of duplication, huge amount of bandwidth. Obviously, you don't have to understand the rest of this to understand that that simply doesn't work. So what do you do instead? Well, you make the blockchain nothing more than an index file, right? a series of pointers. Now, how would that work? And I'll, I'll see if I can walk you through this adequately because this is hard. I'm not sure I'm going to get it right the first time. I tried to write some notes and I'm going to go off them, but I don't know how this is going to go. So if I don't like it, we'll just try again. Imagine, if you will, that I have a patient in my office and they need a chest x-ray. Let's keep this really simple. So what happens? Well, when I order their chest x-ray, that becomes an addition to the blockchain. So I put that order in, that order. The order, right, is not the, not the chest x-ray itself, but just the order is copied to everybody's blockchain. And then that patient goes and gets the chest x-ray. And when they get that chest x-ray, there is both a, an image that goes with that and a radiologist report, right? Those are also assets. They're not bitcoins, but they're assets. And so, when that's generated, it's kept in the radiology database, but it really doesn't go anywhere else. So let's say the patient comes back to my office, and now I want to see the results. Now, in the current system, I would get that faxed over to me, the, the radiologist report, and the patient would bring a disc, and I'd pop it in my computer, and I would look at the chest x-ray. Well, that I think in a blockchain paradigm, none of that would happen. Um, when the report was completed, another block would be added to the chain that says the chest x-ray is done and Dr. Karuchak gets access to the result. So the transaction, if you will, isn't a movement of money. The transaction is to assign Dr. Karuchak the authority to look at the report in the image. And then I would be able to look at the report in the image. But I wouldn't have to copy it to my server. It would stay on the radiology server. And after I, you know, the, the act of viewing it would create a blockchain transaction. Then I would see it and make my interpretation and treat the patient accordingly. But I wouldn't have to copy the image to my server. There would just be links added to the blockchain, all of which gets copied to everybody that's in my network, necessarily, not necessarily a hundred, not necessarily a million doctors all over the United States, but let's say, you know, the, the 2,000 doctors that work in the three hospitals that, that are within walking distance of where I am, you might have 2,000 users on the network, and they would all get that. But, you know, a hacker's got no way of knowing where that chest X-ray data is, and it's not linked to demographic data, so again, it becomes a very poor target for a hacker to try to go after, but yet... The blockchain has not only provided access and security, but it's provided interoperability as well. And that's something that as I kind of read through this, I didn't see that topic developed. But I do think that blockchain allows uh, a lot of leaps forward in the whole interoperability problem that says instead of a patient having to schlep their disk to me for their visit that all that all that's taken care of because of the blockchain transactions that happened number one when i put the order in and number two when the study was completed and the results were put 
on the radiologist server that my access to their server was not username password based. It was blockchain transaction based. And those can be programmed, you know, with any sort of sets of limitations you want. They could be programmed such that only me and my partners in my practice could see that and that there might even be a time limit on it that if I didn't access it inside a month that I'd lose my access or something along those lines, whatever restrictions you want. But the way I access that chest X-ray is no longer by username password the way it is now or by the, the physical carrying of physical digital media like it is now. Either the patient brings their DVD with the picture, or I log on to the radiologist server with a username and password that can be hacked. Now that happens another way. I don't have to have a username and password. All I have in my EMR is a blockchain transaction record that if I click on it, you know, by its authority, I get into... Uh, the radiology server, but only to see the records that the blockchain allows me to, that particular patient, right? Right now, and I hope I'm doing this well, um, right now, if I log in with a username and password, right, I have a username, I have a password, I can see anybody's x-rays. They don't have to be mine. I can, you know, I got access to thousands of images there. All I got to do is know the patient's name and hit search, and it shows me what's there, you know, access to stuff that I don't need access to because I'm not the doctor for every single patient that's there. Now I get you know, access through a blockchain transaction that only gives me access to that particular patient in that particular study. So that's a huge difference, right? I can't get access to Joe Jones's you know, or Susie Smith's x-rays unless she's my patient and a blockchain transaction exists to give me access to her records in particular. So uh, I think there's where the power of blockchain lies in, uh, in, in making, in, in solving uh, you know, many of our health IT um, interoperability and security problems. So a couple of uh, issues. we got about three minutes left. Uh, just a few, little bit of terminology here just so that if you happen to read this stuff, you kind of understand what it is. So let's go back to my example here where we got a chest X-ray. Radiologist did it. They generated an image. They generated a report. That all stayed on the radiologist server, which I accessed not by username password but by a blockchain authorization, which was specific to that patient and that study. That radiologist server would now be called a data lake. Now, why they call it a data lake, I have no idea. But that's the terminology. If you happen to see that and you hear about blockchain and data lakes, that what they're talking about is that's, that's sort of where – that's the servers where the data was actually generated. And it just has to stay there. I don't have to copy that chest X-ray onto my server. It sits on their server with a blockchain authorization in my document list in my EMR. And all I have to do is click on it and I can see it. It's as good as having it on my server, but you know, with a well-developed enough cloud, I can't tell the difference. I click on it, and the image pops up, and that's all I care about. I don't care where that image comes from. I don't care if it comes from my EMR server or if it comes from the radiologist server. As long as it comes up quickly and that technology is available, then it doesn't matter. But in the background, it's going to a data lake that I have authorization access to through a blockchain transaction as opposed to a username password. So – Huge difference. Another nice thing about this 
is that patients would have more control over who gets access to their data. Right? Let's say a primary physician sees a patient with sinusitis, decides that person needs to see an ear, nose, and throat doctor. You know, I am naive to that patient. I have no record of that patient in my EMR the moment they walk in. But the patient or the referring doctor can issue a blockchain transaction that gives me access to that entire chart, which lives on the primary physician's EMR. I don't have to copy it onto mine. I just need the blockchain access, which is, again, not username password based. I don't need access to the entire server of that primary doctor, just the patient they're referring. And a blockchain transaction would be the thing that gave me that referral. And patients would have control over this. right? If a patient was referring themselves, they would have a blockchain app that would allow them to get into their blockchain medical record indexes and say, okay, Mrs. Jones went to Dr. Smith, who now needs to see Dr. Karuchak. So Mrs. Jones gets on her blockchain app, finds Dr. Karuchak's name and says, give access. All right, that generates a blockchain transaction that finds its way to my EMR. So now when that patient comes in, I don't have to pay my staff a zillion dollars to copy that data into my EMR, I get direct access through the other. So we're about out of time. Hopefully that helps. You're still probably confused. I'm still not fully straight on it. Go read about it. There's some good YouTube videos. It is worth your time to get familiar with it. We've used up the hour. You have been listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. See you in a couple of weeks. Don't miss Hal next week. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.